there's this story that I came across this week about President Biden watching a movie at Camp David. It was Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. We are at this moment the state of the art of war. The most fearsome killing machine ever devised by man. In the movie's opening scenes, the crew of a Russian submarine is duped into firing a torpedo at themselves by an artificial intelligence system called the Entity. Captain, our own torpedo is not responding. It's coming right at us. Our torpedo's homing range 400 meters. Wait, come on, shut down our weapon. Our torpedo's still closing. Range 200 meters. Emergency blowout, main power stand. Sound the collision alarm. The White House told a reporter that that experience, watching that movie, made President Biden even more concerned about AI, something he issued an executive order about this week. If that is what inspired this executive order, that would be an amazing story, though I do know the real story and that was definitely not it. (laughs) That's Cecilia Kong, who covers technology and policy for The New York Times. What is the real story? Well, the real story is that once ChatGPT was released last November, the White House woke up, as well as the rest of the world, to really the power of large language models and generative AI. And AI in general became sort of a panic button that everybody, you know, pressed at the same time. And so across the White House, Jeff Zients, um, who's the chief of staff, told every essentially senior member in the cabinet that this was an important matter and that everybody needed to think about how AI would affect their their portfolios. And he started like weekly, if not more than weekly, stand-up meetings um, to talk about AI. And they got to work on what resulted in this week with this executive order. Today on the show, why the White House is worried about AI now and how it wants to shape regulation in the future. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. This executive order is big, more than 100 pages, and it touches on many different facets of AI. Let me just say that it is very broad. It is not terribly deep. So I'll talk about what's of substance, and then I'll talk about what I would describe as like sort of fog. Interesting, but not necessarily substantive. The really surprising for me and quite substantive stuff comes um, on the, falls into the bucket of national security. And what the White House did is they invoked the Defense Production Act, this 1950s law, to um, to essentially regulate AI companies, um, and because just you know, just as a, to back up, the White House has no authority to just just call rules and to start regulating companies. That's something that Congress needs to do. But what the White House did in this instance is that they invoke this law that gives them emergency powers when there are times of like great um, potential security urgency to act, and it gives the White House much more authority. If the DPA sounds familiar to you, that's because it's been used numerous times in the past few years. 
President Trump used it back in 2020 to order General Motors to make ventilators. President Biden used it to speed up production of baby formula. Cecilia says that invoking this Korean War-era law signals that the administration sees AI as a national security threat. And so that signals that he, Biden, believes that AI and the potential risks of AI are that important, that they need this defense, this all-across um, defense agencies' um, response. And so the most interesting thing came from the national security portion of this EO, where the White House essentially called for all companies that create AI tools the most advanced, I should say, AI tools and the biggest companies to stress test their systems for security flaws and then to report their results from those those tests back to the administration. And that's an actual rule, an actual regulation. I will say, however, that most companies that do create AI right now, any companies that are really of significance, have already volunteered to do this. Hmm. Um, they did earlier this year in, in July. They, The White House announced with great pomp and circumstance this voluntary commitment by Microsoft, Google, OpenAI, Anthropic, Inflection, Amazon, bunch of companies where they said that they would what um, stress tests, otherwise known as red teaming, their systems for, for security problems. So it's not entirely new, but it codifies it. It creates it creates sort of a regulation instead of just a voluntary commitment. Usually with an executive order, it, things are somewhat limited in scope. They apply to certain parts of the government or maybe companies that do business with the government. I'm wondering if in invoking the Defense Production Act, does that give this thing more heft? It does, and only that portion. Um, hmm. Only the portion that has to deal with the security testing. And that kind of leads to your your other question, which is, you know, how broad is this really? I mean, it is broad in that there's a lot of discussion about how every agency should be thinking about AI and coming up with standards. There's talk about watermarking, which is, you know, a security measure to guard against disinformation and copyright violations. There's talk about civil rights violations that AI can can facilitate. There's a lot of talk here, but there, but most of the rest of the EO is all sort of um, what I would describe as calls for recommendations and calls for studies. So it's it's not terribly substantive, the rest of the EO. What it does do is that it signals that this administration is pretty serious about AI and that they want every agency to think about it and, and staff people to, to think about it and focus on AI, the risks and the benefits. But, you know, aside from calling for reports, asking for agencies to come up with certain standards, depending on what the vertical is, there's there's not a lot of enforcement or teeth beyond asking for these things. Some of those recommendations that you're talking about are around safety requirements for models that pass kind of a, a certain computing threshold, a, a certain amount of computing power. What are those safety requirements? I think the big takeaways, listeners should know that no existing AI models out on the market right now meet that threshold. This is like future huh. stuff. This is like, yeah, this is this is the biggest models that were like large language models, generative AI, other types of computing models that haven't really been commercialized yet. They're not, they're not available to consumers. So 
that security measure, all these requirements for testing, this is looking at the riskiest stuff that's probably down the line. Not, I'm not saying years, but definitely not today. And actually, that's one of the criticisms that people outside who have observed this say that a lot of this doesn't address, the EO does not address some of the very clear and present dangers that we face right now. For example, like ahead of the 2024 election, a lot of right. disinformation that we see, you know, even in conflict zones right now. I think that the public needs to understand that this stuff is looking ahead. It's not looking right in front of us. One of the things that President Biden referenced is the ability of artificial intelligence to create deepfakes. You can do it now. You can make a a credible Joe Biden. You can make a credible Cecilia Kong. You know, we could do that with your voice right now. And I feel like that's the kind of thing that really gets a politician's attention. How do they address that? Yeah, it definitely got President Biden's attention. And he mentioned it in his speech in signing this executive order. With AI, fraudsters can take three seconds, and you all know this, Three-second recording of your voice. I've watched one of me on a couple of times. I said, when the hell did I say that? There's nothing that gets in a, uh, a politician's attention than a, a false portrayal of them. And that was exactly what, what he was re- referencing. And um, it's a very important issue that is discussed a lot within Washington. And just to be clear, this EO will not solve the deepfake problem immediately, Hmm. nor will it just on its own be able to solve any of those problems per se. A lot of the directives when it comes to this um, EO are about creating standards for the future. And even these directives to companies about reporting on security risks, that stuff won't even apply to, that certainly won't apply to the 2024 election, nor would it apply to what's happening with so many fakes right now in in Gaza and and in the Ukraine. It's a real clear and present problem and danger right now. And right now, the way that Congress is moving slowly and because of the limitations of this EO, the the problem of deep fakes won't even be nearly addressed by, by these efforts in government. With this EO also looking at future harms and and some of the more sort of potentially or billed as existential harms, there is criticism that it doesn't address current harms of AI. One of the biggest ones that people talk about is facial recognition, where there is a wide body of research that shows that facial recognition often does not correctly identify people with darker skin tones. Does the administration think about the criticisms that are being raised about AI right now? You know, is it sort of trading some of those to focus on these future ones? You know, I was actually so surprised that the term facial recognition wasn't really in this EO. And aside from the the implications or the assumptions that one can make when the White House references discrimination and bias generally as, as something that they want to conquer um, and that's something that they fear AI will facilitate, there wasn't 
there wasn't that that spotlight on facial recognition that you certainly hear and you see in Europe, for example. So I, I don't, you know, I hear in private conversations that there is a concern about facial recognition, but there was not a focus on it in this hmm. executive order, nor do I see much of that in, um, like, not in any substantive way, I should say, nor do I see a ton of focus of that on that in in Congress. There's some um, members who, who've talked about their concerns, Ron Wyden, for example, when it comes to facial recognition, and there are some others. But, you know, in Europe, they're viewing AI regulation from categorization, with categorizations of risk, and mm. they view facial recognition as a real high-risk category. So the way that they sort of organize their, their legal principles around AI regulation gives it a, a really clear place in terms of regulation. And in the U.S., it's just sort of broadly seen as one of the tools that could be used for discrimination and bias, which the president talks about, and he did during his speech, and members of Congress talk about. But even there, when it comes to civil rights that individuals have and discrimination bias, there's not a lot of depth, especially in this EO, about how government should go about solving the problem and preventing more discrimination and bias through AI tools. When we come back, what doesn't the executive order do? And what threats from AI does it leave unaddressed? alluded to the watermark issue. And, and one of the things that the executive order talks about is watermarking AI-generated content so that you can look at something and say, oh, that's AI, that's not real. How, how big a deal is that? It's a really interesting topic in that there is a lot of discussion around that term watermark because it's sort of seen as like a real silver bullet solution for hmm. the problem of disinformation and also for the the problem of IP theft. When you talk to computer scientists, they really are dubious that that's the end-all be-all solution. And also they say that's kind of a distraction because a lot of the problem of disinformation simply can't be solved by watermarking, which is essentially an identifier within pieces of content that show where that content originated. That doesn't necessarily solve for the fact that a lot of bad actors will figure ways around it. And also it doesn't solve for the fact that every it, you kind of have to have everybody at once, anybody who produces content online generating AI, to agree to this together. So when you have some stuff that's watermarked and some stuff that's not, then it's kind of, it leads to a false sense of security that watermarking is going to be sort of the safeguard against disinformation. It's important to say that this executive order isn't regulation, more of a directive for the government to monitor the development of AI. In order to do that, the government is relying on NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology to help draft standards for companies to follow and potentially oversee things. There's a lot of talk right now in Washington about how NIST should be the central agency for overseeing AI. I mean, this is an agency that has a lot of different technologies in its portfolio, not just AI. And it's a measurement and standards agency. It's not, you know, it's not seen as like an enforcement agency like the Federal Trade Commission. 
probably no surprise, some companies like Google really want NIST to be the oversight agency. And I think it goes without saying it's because they don't have the culture or the history of being a strong regulatory agency, like a watchdog enforcement policing agency. So, you know, NIST is supposed to come up with these standards on watermarking. Um, and then there's lots of questions of who's just going to oversee AI and safety going forward. I mean, so many questions that aren't answered actually in this EO. Well, that's kind of where I was going with this because, you know, traditionally EOs are sort of limited in scope. There's something an administration can do unilaterally, but but for real rules, it takes Congress. And right now, that ain't happening. So I, I, I wonder, um, what's the best way to put this? How, how much uh, enforceability is here? Are there teeth? Not really. I mean, the regulation is specifically to report back results from testing. Yeah. You know, that's, so that's, it's limited. Um, um, it's not nothing, but it's limited. Um, so as far as teeth, not, not so much. And the other thing I would also bring up is that the, this EO really is, um, is very supportive of the development of AI as well. So it's not just about safety and the risks. There's a lot in here that tries to support the, what's viewed as the opportunities of AI. So, you know, there is discussion about streamlining immigration to bring more skilled workers, the engineers that actually write the code and create these AI tools. There's a shortage of them globally, and the U.S. wants more of them to come here. So this EO tries to do that. It also asks all the agencies to think about ways that they can procure, buy more AI tools. So there is, not only is this not terribly deep, um, though it is wide, there's a lot more carrot than stick I think, hmm. in reading this this EO. Is that why perhaps the major tech and AI companies seem to be pretty happy with all of this? Yeah, I mean, I think there's not a lot surprising. There's not a lot to dislike about this EO. There are the things that companies are concerned about um, include required licensing. So you'd have to go through like an FDA sort of process in order to put out an, e, um, an AI tool. That's something that's been bandied around in, in Congress, um, at least discussed. There's no requirements for, you know, an independent agency like the FTC or the FDA to create rules, specific rules, um, and to have experts on staff. Those are the kinds of things that have been like really scary regulatory proposals that some members of Congress have talked about and that companies, when it really comes down to it, they would push strongly against. Many of them would. I wonder if the U.S. government actually has people at these various agencies. You, you talked about NIST a little bit. You've talked about the FTC. Who who fully grasp AI. I, that always is kind of one of the interesting tensions between Washington and Silicon Valley is Silicon Valley saying, you don't understand what we do. And Washington saying, look, our job is to make sure that that we regulate you. Yeah. Oh, completely, Lizzie. There is a real dearth of expertise when it comes to technology in general. And when it comes to AI, which is extremely specialized and there's a really small number of people who are 
really at the the forefront of this um, in the world, they're not in government. They're all in the private sector. And this raises, you raise a really important point in that the the EO actually asks for the various agencies to to start hiring more AI experts. And I find it really, really implausible, frankly, to think that a gush of people are going to leave Silicon Valley and the jobs and the salaries are being offered by Google and Microsoft and Amazon and OpenAI to 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 work in federal government. There will be, yeah. of course, those who feel the calling too, which is like fantastic. But I mean, when I when I look at like the the average salaries given bonuses, there's like seven digits when it comes to AI experts in Silicon Valley and the idea of going to government and not just losing the salary, but losing the ability to work with other experts who are at the cutting edge of this. I mean, these are scientists who are really excited about what they're creating, you know, and they want to be with other people who are creating really interesting things. But then to flip over to government and to work in bureaucracies where they may be like the the sole people who really get what's going on. And then to fight against, you know, the bureaucracy of stasis, which is like sort of like the the norm in Washington, I think it's going to be super challenging. As you've alluded to, a lot of the things that the administration is talking about are not going to apply in the short term. And I wonder if the administration is just sort of like trying to create a conversation, get ahead of some of the advancements in this space. You know, what their goal is, is it just to get things moving? Yeah, I do think that's it. And I think that there's merit to that too. You know, it's to show in a real clear-throated way that there is absolute prioritization of this issue, um, at least in in spirit. And that matters. And, you know, and the reason why I say that is I'll, there was another executive order that came out um, um, earlier in the Biden administration on competition policy. Again, it's not like the White House can start creating new rules and new laws on antitrust. But what that EO did was it gave a signal to every agency that the White House was 100% behind bold action when it came to antitrust. Hmm. And like, let's put aside the idea of like new legislation on antitrust. That's up to Congress. But, you know, what you did see is that there were very like-minded heads of independent agencies and also agencies that are not independent, like the DOJ, that absolutely fell in line with the spirit of that EO. And they've taken really aggressive action when it comes to antitrust. So it does help provide momentum and give agencies the signal that they have the full support of the executive branch and that this is an all of government sort of call to arms, if you will, on a particular cause. And I think that that, I bring up that antitrust anecdote because I think that's one of the the motivations for the EO on artificial intelligence is to tell the rest of the, to signal to the rest of the government and the many dozens of agencies that, that AI is a priority, get people within your staff and hire people to start writing policy internally, to start thinking about standards, to not be caught behind. It also seems to bring the U.S. government in line with with other governments around the world. Uh, we've got several others sort of led by the U.K. signing on to the Bletchley Declaration, which is named after British codebreakers in World War II. Um, and, and that says there's potential for serious, even catastrophic harm, either deliberate or unintentional, 
Um, stemming from some of the, the capabilities of AI models, what is the kind of international coordination that's going on behind the scenes? This particular summit that's happening this week in, in the UK is intended to get the heads of states and, and other government leaders of the biggest countries, and those, particularly those that are that do have their own AI companies, um, to agree to baseline standards on what is safe and what is not when it comes to AI. What actually comes from from this kind of a meeting is really, you know, to be determined. I just don't think that it it would take much more. It's the beginning of a conversation, but it would take much more to get, for example, China which is a participant in this this meeting, the summit, to agree to some baseline standards with the U.S., for example. There's just such a, a wedge between the U.S. and China when it comes to technology um, regulation, values, and norms. And very importantly, one of the big motivators of this EO and any regulation when it comes to technology in the United States is the U.S. wanting and finding incredible bipartisan agreement that the U.S. must lead versus China when it comes to technology and when it Hmm. comes to security. So, you know, it's interesting that a lot of these um, government leaders are meeting in London and and talking about AI, but when it comes to an actual agreement on the big issues, these are countries that are competing against each other, and I think that's important to keep in mind. There's also this tension that I find really interesting. Uh, You know, a lot of these governments are using AI, right? They're using it at the Pentagon. And at the same time, they're making these pronouncements and and working on these executive orders. And I'm trying to understand and unpack why they're doing this. Are, Are they aware of that inherent tension, do you think, of we are using AI, we know we're doing it, and also we're out there painting an apocalyptic future if we don't get this right. And I think that's kind of a, a tension that has existed with most technology, you know, and you know this so well, Lizzie, like going back to even more simple software tools that were used for surveillance, you know, those were those mm. were technologies that the Department of Defense and government has been using for for quite some time, while Congress and federal agencies have been trying to create regulations for and against. Um, and so there's there is a divide when it comes to consumer private sector uh, consumer use and government use for sure. And um, that tension is is very much pronounced um, when it comes to AI, because you're absolutely right. The Pentagon and all defense agencies have for a while used um, AI tools, including facial recognition tools that are that are AI based. And there is that tension, and I think a lot of this EO is motivated by two things, which is number one, to make sure that private sector sales to consumers are not dangerous. And the recognition that AI is a little bit different in that some of these models are just so incredibly powerful that without some baseline guardrails, things can become very unsafe and even potentially pose existential harms in the way that um, that those in the UK are describing these, you know, catastrophic possible, you know, human ending harms. And that's what concerns 
folks, including in the Department of Defense, about the power of these AI tools and the need for, for regulations. Cecilia Kong, thank you so much for coming on. Well, thanks for having me, Lizzie. Cecilia Kong covers technology and regulation for The New York Times. That is it for the show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell and Anna Phillips. Our show is edited by Jonathan Fisher. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate, and TBD is part of the larger What Next family. We're also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you are a fan of the show, the best way to show that support is to join Slate Plus. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. All right, we will be back on Sunday with another episode. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.